Uh, let's give a higher ground another round of applause. Thank you so much for being here, leading us in worship this morning, and uh, we serve a mighty God, and He changes lives, and I know that sometimes we look at the world and we think, man, things are just seeming to be- get worse, um, but that same conversation, I think, happens every generation, and we have to remember that there are faithful followers of Christ in the next generation coming up. And part of our church is we want to reach that next generation with the gospel uh, for lives to be changed. Our goal at Providence is we want, we believe that God planted us here in 1846 to reach this community with the good news of the gospel. And my belief, and I know your belief is as well, we want this church here being a vibrant church, continuing to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus until the day Jesus comes back. And so it's encouraging to be able to see uh, this younger generation leading us in worship this morning. Thank you all so much. Uh, And also grateful to have the youth group from Hamilton Street here as well. And uh, everyone that calls Providence home. And if you're visiting here, thank you for being here this morning. We love Jesus uh, and we take God's word seriously. We believe that God inspired the book of the Bible, that he gave us the Bible for us to read it and to live it, and when it says things that we'd rather not do, to submit our life to it rather than doing what we choose to do because this is God's word, and God knows what's best. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants us to be in a relationship uh, with him, and so today... We're continuing in our sermon series through uh, the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 today, and uh, we're going to be looking at at verses 17 through 31. Uh, There's a cold front coming. Have you seen that? The cold front is coming. And it seems whenever the fall comes and you have that first cold air that hits Kansas City, I find myself at the gas station having to put more air in my tires. Is that the same with you as well? Yeah, I'm assuming so because there's always a line when it's time for me to have to put more air in my tires. Uh, But when it comes to having air in your tires, it's a very important thing. You don't want to have too much. You don't want to have too little. But let's see a raise of hands. How many people check the air in their tires consistently? I bet Joe probably does. But other than Joe, uh, oh, Dave does. Joe and Dave, that doesn't surprise me. But most people don't. But Joe and Dave, it's really important, right? To have the right amount of air in your tires. And here's the thing, when it comes with air in your tires, you just can't eyeball it. You, You just can't look at the tire and go, you know, there's too much air in there. Or you can't look at the tire and go, ah, there's not quite enough air in there, unless the tire is completely flat. And when the tires are completely flat, then you go, you know what? I think there's a problem. There's no air left in the tire. And so you just can't look at the outside of the tire and decide, is this tire good or is this tire bad? Does it need less air or does it need more air? But rather, you need a tool. And what tool do you need? You need a tire gauge. And I have a tire gauge in both of our cars. Do you know that, Whitney? There's a tire gauge in both of our cars and so that we can take it out and we can check the tire pressure to make sure the pressure is good. See what's going on in the inside of the tire to make sure it is going well. And what I want us to understand is that as we are living the Christian life, we have to continue to check our heart. 
We have to see what is going on in our life, what is going on in our hearts, and we really need kind of a tire gauge, a heart gauge, to look inside of us and say, am I doing what I'm doing with the right motives? Am I living my life in a way to honor the Lord? Am I doing what I do in a way to honor God, or is my heart impure? Or what about this, as we check our heart to go, you know, on the outside, I'm at church, I'm at Bible study, uh, I seem to be a good leader. That's what it looks like on the outside. But on the inside, if someone is able to check into your heart and to see your thoughts, to see what you're doing while you're completely alone, while you're by yourself, would that gauge find the same thing that shows on the outside? Or is there a secret sin in your life? Is there a secret sin that you say, I hope no one ever knows about that? I hope no one ever knows about what is going on in my life. And I'm glad there are a lot of young people here today. Uh, This is for men and young men and women. But specifically for young men, there is this thing called internet pornography. And people aren't going to know that you're looking at it because you can look at it on your phone. But this is what I want to tell you. Pornography is a vicious evil. Uh, To me, I bet it's more addictive to the the most lethal drug out there. And so I want to tell young men and young women here today, do not start it. And you have a much harder journey than what I did even in the late 90s. That seems a long time to you, but the 90s really weren't that far away. It was a great decade, by the way, but it wasn't that far long ago. But in the 90s, in order to get pornography... You had to go to the gas station or you had to go to the bookstore and there was a Playboy that you would then have to ask the clerk to hand to you and he would check your ID to make sure you were old enough to receive this. And in order to do that, there's a huge amount of accountability that's already built there. But now what your generation has is you can find absolutely anything on the privacy of your own phone. And Satan will use that tool to ruin your future marriage, to ruin your career, to trap you in a trap that you feel that there is no way that you can get out of that trap. But the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus can free you from the most binding sin, including freeing you from internet pornography. And I am specifically addressing the young men at this moment because I'm saying don't begin it. But I also know the statistics. 80% of men that go to church, whatever their age is, looks at pornography at least once a month. 80%. And women's around 25%. And so what I'm saying is that this is something, men, that we have to keep out of our lives. We have to keep it out of our lives. And what happens in our culture is our culture accepts it. They say, well, this is just what guys do. There's no harm to that. Men just look at this stuff. But we're called to be different. And we're called to live a life that looks radically different. And we're called to live a life that is above reproach. And that counts staying away from sexual morality. Staying away from pornography. And you may be here and you may say, there's no way I can get out of that. I'm the only one that's struggling with that. 
Satan's the father of lies. He lies to us. You're not the only one struggling with that. You need to find someone you can talk to and to pray with you and to encourage you. And you may say, what in the world does this have to do with the rich young ruler? Well, we'll get there. There there are two sins that people really tend to struggle with. There's a lot of them, but two that seem to ruin lives and ruin careers have to do with sexual morality and have to do with money. And so the two tie hand in hand together. And I wanted to talk about this because on Thursday, our Christian culture was rocked yet again with sexual morality. As I woke up that morning and I checked my Facebook status and what I saw was that Christian comedian John Christ cancels tour due to sexual immorality. To sexual sin, he cancels tour. And John Christ is a Christian comedian. He's hilarious. He's a funny guy. On the outside, it looked like everything was great. But in the inside, he had a secret sin, and he was using his position in life to abuse fellow sisters in the Lord. I get an email most days from the Baptist Press. And the Baptist Press, I got the email on Thursday. I read that about John Christ. I open up this email, and John Christ was actually the, the second story on the line Here's the top three stories that I got on Thursday. It says this. Number one, pastor accused of abuse is the top candidate at a Tennessee church. Second story, John Christ admits to sexual sin, counsels tour, tour. Third story, Chicago pastor resigns after 1960s sex abuse revealed. That's the top three stories on the Southern Baptist Press that I got on Thursday. And I don't know about these other two pastors, and I don't know about John Christ, but my guess is internet pornography was the gateway that led to these other abuses and other things happening. It was probably pornography that led to that. So I want to say... Men and women, fathers of Jesus Christ, we have to be above reproach. And as we look at this tire gauge, we, this heart check gauge that we use, we need to make sure that what's going on in our heart exemplifies a follower of Jesus. I've been in the ministry for 12 years, and I know more than I can count of fellow men who are no longer in the ministry due to sexual sin. Alan Branch has a file on his desk where he puts the clippings of ministers who are no longer in ministry because of sexual sin. And here's the thing we want to tell you. When we see that, here's the wrong reaction. That will never happen to me. That is the absolutely wrong reaction. Because... These are godly people who have fallen into sin. And once we think that we're above a certain sin, the Scripture says that pride comes before the fall. Once we think that's not going to happen to me, we find ourselves falling into that sin. Think about this. King David. Have we heard of King David? How is King David described in the Bible? As a man after 
as a man after God's own heart. Has anyone else here been described by God as a man or woman after God's own heart? Okay. Now, what sin did King David commit that he's famous for, infamous for? Adultery. Okay. So here you have King David that God describes after a man after his own heart who falls into sexual sin. So we have to tell ourselves, if King David wasn't above falling into sexual sin, Michael Putnam's not above falling into it either, and neither are you. And so we have got to keep a close check on our heart, and we need to live a life in a way where the inside matches the outside, and we need accountability to pray for each other, to strengthen each other through this. Sexual sin is a hard thing that people struggle with. The second one is this, has to do with money. And the third is probably power and authority. But we're talking about money today. We're going to be reading uh, Mark chapter 10. And what we're going to be looking at is checking your heart. Our three points are this. We're going to see mismatched living, the distraction of wealth, and upside-down values. Mismatched living, the distraction of wealth, and upside-down values. So if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have your Bible, it will be on the screens behind me. Uh, Mark chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse uh, 17. As he, he being Jesus, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. First point we're going to look at this morning is mismatched living. Yesterday, we had a celebration celebrating Barb's 80th birthday party, and we come to the fellowship hall. I bring the girls. We get here. I told Collins and Carter to get their shoes on. We show up to the fellowship hall for the party, and I look down at Collins's feet, and she had on two boots, but one was a red cowgirl boot, and the other one was a pink cowgirl boot. And I said, Collins, your boots are, are mismatching, and we just kind of laughed, and we thought, oh, that's kind of silly, because, you know, she's six. It's, it's no big deal. If I was wearing a, a brown shoe and a black shoe, that may look a little stranger, but again, it's not the end of the world if I were to do that. But what I want us to understand, when it comes to mismatching your clothes, it's, it's, it's weird, but it's not detrimental. But as followers of Jesus Christ, if the inside of your life and the outside of your life mismatches, there are huge, huge issues there. There are huge issues. And we have to understand that there's no room for secret sin in your life. 
You want to be the same person that you are on Sunday morning here in church as you are in the locker room with your sports team. You want to be the same person here on Sunday morning as you are at work. You want to be the same person as you are and you present here at church as you are at school or at the gym or at Price Chopper, wherever you are. We are to be men and women, boys and girls, who live a life from the inside out. I live my life how I do on the outside because it's been transformed on the inside by Jesus Christ. Following Jesus is not just an extra activity. It's not, I like to exercise, I like to cheer on the chiefs, and I'm a follower of Jesus. It's not an extra activity. Rather, it is you surrendering your whole life to him and saying, Jesus, I want you to change my life. Every part of it, from what I do and what I don't do, from how I handle my finances, from how I have a work ethic, from how I show honesty uh, to my customers, whatever it is, our relationship with Jesus Christ is to transform every single part of our life. Here what we see is this young man runs up to Jesus. It says that Jesus is setting out on a journey, and Mark uses this language journey here because it's showing us that he's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed for his crucifixion, for his death. So Mark, towards the end of his gospel, begins using journey language. And as he's on this journey, this man runs up to him, he kneels down before him, and he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in this question, you have a man who's successful. He, he's a ruler. We learn that he has a lot of possessions. He's wealthy. And it, on the outside, it looks like he's got it all together. But he wants to make sure his eternity is at stake. So he runs up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do? Do you notice a problem there already? What do I do? What is it that I need to do to earn salvation? And what we understand through the scripture is there's nothing. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift. It's his, God's amazing grace, God's amazing mercy. We deserve, because of our sins, we deserve separation from God. But because God loved us so much, he was going to provide the way for us to have mercy through sending his son, Jesus. Through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ, our sins can be forgiven. We deserve eternal punishment from God. We deserve separation from God. But because God loves us so much through Jesus Christ, he provides a way for us to have mercy. And what we don't deserve is eternity in heaven. What we don't deserve is a relationship with God. But God shows us grace. And he gives us what we don't deserve through his son. But the rich wrong ruler doesn't understand that. He thinks this is something he can earn. He thinks this is something that he can do. So he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives an answer here. He says, well, why do you call me good? Only no one is good except God alone. And so even rabbis wouldn't go by good teacher. They would use that word. They would attribute it, that word, to God, that God is set apart, that God is the one that is good. And when he comes, this rich young ruler is basically taking this idea of, 
hey, I've done a lot of good things, and this is a good teacher. So he's taken from the mindset of this is one good person talking to another good person. But Jesus says this, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He's not denying his deity. He's not denying that he's God. Rather that he's confirming it. He's saying, I am God's son. And now I'm going to tell you what it is I need you to do. And here you have this man. Maybe it was he was trying to butter Jesus up by saying this, whatever it was. But he's at, on his hands and knees, at the foot of the Son of God. And when Jesus looks at him, first he says, you need to obey the commandments. And he lists off the second half of the Ten Commandments that have to do with how we interact with each other. And he says, you need to follow these commandments. And this is what the, the man says. He says, well, I've, I've kept all those from my youth. Do we think he's, he's being uh, truthful there, that he kept them all? What we learn about the law is that the law is designed to show us that we've sinned. The law is given to us to show us that we have sinned and that we can't save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And we realize we need someone to save us. The law is like a mirror. I told the girls yesterday that I was so glad that the cooler weather was here. And they said, well, why is that? I said, well, because I don't have to mow the lawn anymore. And they said, oh, that's kind of nice. Because, you know, those nice July hot days in Kansas City and you're out there mowing the lawn, and I come inside, and I look in the mirror, and I go, whew, I look disgusting. The mirror tells me, the mirror shows me that I look disgusting. But no matter how long I stand and look at that mirror, that mirror can never make me clean. Do you realize that? I could stand there a whole week looking at that mirror, realizing I'm disgusting, but I'm still disgusting. What I have to do is I have to go take a shower. And the shower is then what makes me clean. And so the law, the way the law works is we look at it and we see, I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I have fallen short of God's glory. But the law can't save me. We need something else to save us, to make us clean. And that's Jesus Christ. That's our Messiah who lived a perfect life and died and provided the way for our sins to be forgiven. So we look at the law to say, I need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. And I'm going to surrender my life to him. But this young man, he, he says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Verse 21 says, looking at him, the word looking here from the Greek, it's this idea of intense scrutiny, where he's really observing, really looking at this young man. And when he looks at this rich young man, guess what Jesus thinks about him? He loves him. Here is a man who says, I've kept all the commandments. What do I need to do to earn salvation? And he doesn't go off and say, wow, your theology is terrible. What are you doing? This is crazy. But he rather, he loves him. He has compassion on him. But he gives a direct challenge on this. Have you really followed all the commandments? He gives this challenge because to follow Jesus means to do what Jesus says. To follow Jesus means to do what God teaches us and commands us to do. And he says this, you lack one thing. We don't know the one thing he lacks. 
In fact, he doesn't lack anything material-wise. He's a rich young man. He has so much that it's hard for him to let it go. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. I want you to go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. There's a high cost to follow Jesus. Following Jesus Christ is not just giving up your Sunday morning. But following Jesus Christ is giving up every part of your life. Surrender your life to Him, going where He calls you, doing what He leads you, following Him, submitting your life to His Word, living your life however God leads, however God calls. There's a high price. But I want to say it's worth it. Because when you give up your life, that's when you experience life for the first time. Life, how you were created to be in that relationship with God, where you can love Him and you can love other people. But the man hears that cost. He had run up to Jesus saying, Jesus, what do I need to do? What's the cost to get eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, here's something you can do. You can go and sell all your stuff and then come and follow me. And when he hears that high cost, this is what he says. It's too hard. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And he goes away. It says he was dismayed by this demand. This word gives a, it gives a physical presence of where you say something to someone that's shocking and you see it across their face. I'm sure Jesus saw it across this young man's face where he can't believe what he said and then it said and he went away grieving and this greek word grieving it gives this picture of storm clouds coming in see that picture of things were going great just a moment ago but when i heard that cost i'm starting to grieve because he had many possessions verse 23 jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible. Second point we're going to look at today is this. There's a distraction of wealth. A distraction of wealth. Right here you're about to see a very radical teaching that Jesus is going to teach. It's supposed to be radical. It shocks the disciples. It should shock us today as well. But I want to say this from, from the outset is that money can be a great servant, but money is a terrible boss. Money can be a great servant if you are using the money to advance God's kingdom. You're using the money to bring Him glory. You're using the money in a way that honors Him. But it's very often for money then to become your God. It's very easy for money to own you instead of you owning money. Well, how do I know the difference? you got to be checking your heart. What is it that you truly depend upon? Do you depend upon God or do you depend upon your bank account? What is it that you depend upon for your security? And what Jesus says here is, is he says, 
how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what we like to do is we like to make this teaching easier. First way we make this teaching easier is this. That's not talking about me. I'm not rich. Can't be talking about me. And what's nice about that is there's, unless you're Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, uh, there's no one in here richer than you, okay? So, but we're able to say, well, there's always someone richer than me. And so we're going to say, well, Jesus isn't talking to me, and we just kind of ignore this passage. Do you realize that Jesus talks more about money than any other topic? Why? Because money is so easy for to become our God. It's so easy for us to use it it to become our what we worship instead of worshiping the God who blessed us with the money. And so what we see is there can be a, a distraction of wealth. And what Jesus says is he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Pretty crazy, huh? It's a parable. Camel, the largest animal in Palestine. The eye of the needle, the smallest opening you can think about. And so first we try to downplay and soften this teaching by saying, well, he's not talking to uh, to me because I'm not rich. Second thing is this. We try to use exegesis to, or doctoring the text a little bit to make it sound not quite as radical. There's a traditional story that goes like this. There was a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle and that the camel couldn't get in it unless it got on its knees and they took all the stuff off of it and then it could go through. But that is a teaching that's kind of a, just a myth, kind of a tradition. It's not a biblical teaching. It's a teaching that probably a wealthy church used to make this a little softer on them. And, but what is Jesus teaching? He's teaching this. Take a camel and try to put it through the eye of the needle. It's impossible. And he says in the same way, it's that hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said this. Who then can be saved? And you ready for the good news of the gospel? We can't save ourselves. If you're rich or poor, middle class, young or old, if you've lived a a good life or you've killed seven people, you can't save yourselves no matter where you are. It's impossible for us. But guess what? It's not impossible for God. God can change any life. He can change absolutely any life. And because of that is why he sent his son to provide the way for us to have salvation. So as we read this, this shouldn't be shocking to us because we should realize, hey, I'm not that rich, but I can't save myself either unless Jesus changed my life. And what Jesus is saying, though, is that if you have a lot of wealth, you can have a lot more distractions to actually needing Jesus. You may say, well, Pastor, I, I'm not sure if that's true. Well, here's a couple statistics I want to throw out here. Uh, here at our church, only our treasurer knows who gives what, so I don't know who gives what. But this is a survey that was done in 2019, which was this year, uh, and it says this. Tithers, those that give 10% of their income to a local church, 
make up only 10 to 25% of any congregation. Those that give 10%, it's going to be 10 to 25% of those uh, of people in the congregation. The average Christian gave 2.5% of their income to the church. Any guesses, that was in 2019, this year, any guesses of how many, what the percentage of giving was to the church during the Great Depression? 3.3. Christians gave more to the church during the Great Depression than they do in 2019. I haven't done the math on this. Maybe Matt Barnard can do it for us. I think if you take your 25% of tithers and then divide it with those that aren't giving, it probably gets to 2.5%. It's probably my guess. It's kind of where it's at. And so you have 2.5% that's giving to the church. Now, out of those that give, Dave Ramsey would love this statistic, 8 out of 10 people that give to the church have no credit card debt because you're using your money in a way to where you're able to give. Dave Ramsey says this. He says that most Christians he meet with want to give, but they can't give because they have too much debt and they're unable to give. So trying to provide ways, how do you get out of the debt? How do you use your finances in a way that's honoring the Lord to where you can be a giver? Now, these next two are, are pretty shocking to me. Only 1% of families that make $75,000 or more tithe. Only 1% of families that make 75000 or more tithe. And are you ready for this statistic? This one really got me. This was from a 2015 study. If a family has a salary of less than $20,000, okay, you got a family that's making less than $20,000, they're eight times more likely to give anything to the church than a family that makes $75,000 a year. And what we begin to see is we begin to see that wealth can be a distraction. It can be a distraction. We can begin looking at all these other things we can get, and we begin missing out on what's most important. What's most important advancing God's kingdom? What's most important seeing lives changed by the gospel? That is what is most important. Money is a resource. Jesus isn't saying no one should have money. He isn't saying that uh, everyone should get rid of their money, but he understands this rich young ruler, his money had him, and he wasn't willing to give it up. We know that Jesus and the Apostle Paul as well were funded by wealthy people. We know they stayed at people who owned homes, but we have to remember, am I the boss of these possessions or are they the boss of me? And we have to keep our heart check on what is really valuable to us. Wealth can be a distraction. And then Jesus shows us these upside-down values in verses 28 through 31. It says, Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. 
There's upside down values in the kingdom of God. What the world says is good and successful, Jesus turns it upside down. He says, if you want to be the greatest in the place, you need to be the greatest servant. You need to get down and to serve. And here, this is what he says, is he says, listen, if you give up everything and follow me, I'm going to take care of you. I know what you need. I'm a caring father. I'm going to take care of you. And this is what he says. He says, no one who has left these things had not received a hundred times more. What does that mean? Well, some of us, when we became a follower of Christ, your biological family may have disowned you for that faith. You may have severed some relationships because of that. But what did you gain in exchange? You gain not blood relatives biologically, but blood relatives because of the cross and your follower and, and, and your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You've gained a large family as followers of Jesus Christ. It also says that, what about houses? I, I lost a place to live. And basically, Jesus is saying, you're going to have others that are going to help take care of you, help provide for you, watch over you. What about fields? I've left my fields. We now have tons of fields of harvest, of people that need to hear the gospel. We have a field to work in. It just looks different. Our fields down Stark Avenue, reaching others with the good news that Jesus saves. And then he says this, and you're also going to get persecution. And you go, well, that's kind of odd. Houses, family, fields, persecutions. Did he mean to add that there? Absolutely. We will face hardships for being followers of Jesus Christ. It's not if, it's when. We will face hardships for following Jesus Christ. There's a high cost, but it's absolutely worth it. Because why? We're going to receive eternal life in the age to come. We have a mission to live for the Lord faithfully here on earth. And that's going to include hardships. It's going to include hard things. But when we pass away or when Jesus returns, we will then spend eternity with God in heaven. But how do you receive that? It's not through gaining the most earthly wealth and buying it or earning it or deserving it. Rather, it's through getting on your hands and knees and saying, Father, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Will you forgive me? And here's the beautiful answer. If you surrender your life to Christ every time, you say, yes, I will. Jesus died on the cross to provide the way for every person, whoever surrenders his or her life to Jesus, to become a follower of him. So you may be here today and you may say, Pastor, I don't have salvation. I don't have hope in Jesus Christ. And if that is you, the Bible tells us to simply surrender all, to give our life to Jesus, to confess that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Say that that Savior is Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and be your Lord and Savior, and Jesus will change your life today. That is you as we sing this final song. I'd love to be able to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You guys can start heading up if you like. You may be here today and you may be saying, well, Pastor, you know, I've really struggled with money. I haven't handled it well. I, I, I'm in a lot of debt and I really don't know what to do. I haven't handled money well at all. 
And if that is you, I'd love to talk to, to Whitney and I. We have a lot of budget conversations. Uh, we've used tools from Dave Ramsey and some other people that have really helped us with our finances. If you're struggling with finances, you're not alone. It's not fun conversations to, to do envelopes, systems, and things like that, but it does helpful. And so we'd love to be able to talk with you. There's other people in our church that have handled money very well. They'd love to be able to talk with you about how to best handle your resources in a way where it helps get you out of debt. Or you may be here on the opposite end, and you may say, you know, I think I've put more faith in my money than I do in Jesus. And if that is you, we'd love to be able to pray with you and talk about how you can use your money in a way that honors the Lord. We also talked about the sensitive topic of pornography and sexual morality. And if you find yourself entrapped in that, again, you're not alone. We'd love to be able to talk with you, to pray with you, to encourage you, to come up with a plan to be able to help you be freed from that burden. We serve a mighty God. He can save us for eternity and he can also free us from handling our finances the wrong way and being entrapped in a sin. God provides freedom. This is a powerful message that God has given us. And I want us to be faithful to remember, to check our heart, to make sure what's on the inside is matching up what's on the outside. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for this day that we can gather here and worship you. And uh, Lord, we do pray as we talked about some tough topics today with both money and uh, sexual morality. Father, I pray that you give us strength uh, to honor you in the way you desire and because we know it's what's best. And Lord, we pray for freedom. We pray for strength that only you can provide. It's in your son's name we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.